When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores experience and meaning and their impact on individuals and the broader society. I'm adding this intro after recording the episode because I feel it would be irresponsible to not do so. This episode is about a historic document, my search for it, and how I ultimately found it. I purposely did not read it before creating this script in hopes that it would help me remain more objective. Instead, after reading it and considering its implications, I have decided to add both an introduction and a coda to the original script. By way of introduction, I want to say, unequivocally, there is nothing in this world that anyone can do. No thought, no action, no hostility, no insult or injury that can ever be used as a justification or excuse to commit a genocide. Of that, I am sure. And although I cannot speak for the dead... I will say that someone as committed to the effort to end genocide in this world as Henry Morgenthau Sr. was, I cannot believe that anything he ever said or did in his life would have been to paint any group as being responsible for their own genocide, certainly not his own community. I will have more to say in the coda, but I felt compelled to make this completely clear before publishing the rest of this episode. And with that, Let's proceed. Like a lot of you, I've been consuming a lot of media lately around Gaza. I've found several English-presenting TV channels and a lot of resources on YouTube that I'll be sharing in the description if you'd like to have access to some diverse voices on these issues. One surprisingly good podcast I stumbled on is The Thinking Muslim, and that's saying something coming from someone who was involved in secular activism for more than a decade. But a good source is a good source, and I'm impressed with the host and the guests and the insights. Some of them have helped me make sense of a few nagging points of confusion I've had since I was in high school about some of the attitudes in the other nation-states in the region around the conflict. It was on this podcast that Sammy Hamdi explained why Middle Eastern nations in the area are against taking in Palestinian refugees. Hamdi is a consultant for international businesses and corporations who helps them assess risk as they operate around the globe. It's literally his job to understand attitudes and foresee potential issues and problems that these companies might run into based on things like regional conflicts and motivations. In the U.S., I had always heard that Arab nations refuse to accept refugees because they're only interested in using the Palestinian conflict to attack Israel. 
but in truth they don't really care about other people, especially not the Palestinians. It had a ring about it that reminded me, as someone who grew up in the U.S., of the propaganda that we used against black and slave people and Native Americans. The narratives were often framed from a colonial settler side as, these people don't care about human life like we do. They don't love their children the way we do. It's a way of othering people and dehumanizing them, painting them as less compassionate, less loving, less caring, less human. And then, in the U.S., we could go on enslaving and slaughtering and living out this manifest destiny at their expense because they weren't kind like we were. It's ironic to think about how the U.S. framed the people they were killing and enslaving as the ones without compassion. But Hamdi explains it's about solidarity and that the people of Egypt don't want their government to take bribes dressed up as aid packages from the United States to help with what they see as an ethnic cleansing. He says this is why they accept the money and the aid only to send north into Gaza, but refuse to open a human corridor to accept refugees into the south. Later, I watched an interview with Israeli spokesperson Mark Regev, where he was asked if Israel had considered opening a human corridor for refugees and creating secure encampments along any of the larger border with Israel. He doesn't answer right away, and when he does speak, he redirects the conversation without answering. I realize I've never even heard that question asked before. Then a few days ago, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK gives a press conference where he strongly insists that Palestinians don't want to leave their homes and their land, even in the state it's in, and that there will not be another displacement. I see he's echoing Hamdi's claims. I sit down for coffee and see a brief human interest clip from the YouTube Guardian channel titled, Why I Stay, Living Inside the Ruins of My Gaza Home. It's told from the perspective of an 18-year-old young woman who's living in the bombed-out house she grew up in with her sisters and father. They briefly went to stay at a nearby hospital in a tent camp for safety, but she says they soon realized it wasn't safe from debris, shrapnel, and rocks. Her father, who's recovering from injuries as he clears out cement pieces from what was once the home's interior, explains he built the house, brick by brick. She shows images of it on a cell phone, and I'm glad she's managed to find power sources somewhere to keep the phone going. She says life was boring, but beautiful, and she misses her boring life now. She had just graduated high school with high marks, and only had just started her university studies for the last two weeks before October 7th. They even managed to find their family cat still alive. They had assumed it had either died or run away in the strikes. Her little brother holds it up. It looks like a feral cat that sometimes comes around my house, a big gray short hair named Bear. She's painted messages on larger chunks of rubble for anyone to read, graffiti that she translates for the journalist. Where is my home? Where is our humanity? But I see her attachment to her home. I see that she doesn't want to leave in spite of having no walls around her and a front yard filled with the rubble that was once those now shattered walls. Hamdi has labeled what we are experiencing as a war of narratives. And his narrative 
makes more sense than the bigoted narratives I've been exposed to all my life, saying that not taking refugees means not caring. Hamdi is explaining that to a lot of people in the surrounding regions, not taking in the refugees means solidarity in the face of adversity. He filled a gap in a narrative that hasn't made sense to me since childhood that now I feel I have a better understanding. I wonder if this young woman will survive or if someday those messages will be all that's left of her. Someone will stumble across them while rebuilding and wonder who wrote them. Maybe it will be an international worker who can't even read Arabic who clears the boulders away. Or will she still be there, one day in the future, having rebuilt it herself? If you caught the episode about genocide, then you might remember a mention of the U.S. Ottoman ambassador Henry Morgenthau Sr., who tried to intervene in the Armenian situation. As I'm watching another interview on the Thinking Muslim podcast, I'm introduced to Ahmed Keeler, the author of Rethinking Islam and the West, He is currently a visiting fellow at the Center of Islamic Studies, University of Cambridge, and was a distinguished fellow at the Faculty of Leadership and Management, University Staines Islam, Malaysia, in 2016. As I said, good quality guests. During the conversation, he mentions a petition signed by Henry Morgenthau Sr., a prominent Jewish diplomat who served as U.S. Ambassador to the Ottoman Empire from 1913 to 1916. I had seen this petition mentioned in my reading on the history of genocide with Raphael Lemkin. Morgenthau had also worked against genocidal forces of his time and within his scope. But I didn't look into the petition because it wasn't part of my topic. I had read that Lemkin was an anti-Zionist and I was curious to hear his thinking, but when I looked further, it appeared that later in his life he did sign on with Zionism, so I didn't really go any further down that path, not out of lack of interest in Zionist views, but because we're all very familiar with them in the West. Israel exists, and the reasons for that and the documents supporting that end are easy to find and familiar to us all by now. With recent events being what they are, I've been seeing more and more organizations coming forward like Jewish Voice for Peace and If Not Now Movement and Breaking the Silence. Voices like Gideon Levy, Raz Sigal, Tal Mitnick, and a number of Jewish, Israeli, and Palestinian filmmakers who are speaking out and sharing their voices using their art. The idea of a significant number of Jews voicing anti-Zionist positions or views critical of Israeli policy raises a significant question about how the U.S. is branding anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, or criticism of Israel. Additionally, the number of non-Jewish Zionist supporters demonstrates that being Zionist and being a Jew are not synonymous. Christians United for Zionism welcomed its 10 millionth member in 2021, and our own Catholic president, Joe Biden, has self-labeled as a Zionist. Within Israel itself, we're seeing protests in the streets against Netanyahu. I'm not suggesting these protesters are anti-Zionist, but they're clearly critical of the Israeli policy and leadership. I can understand a government not wanting any segment of the population persecuted or threatened. That's simply keeping the peace and ensuring basic citizen safety. And in some cases, there are groups that are more targeted who require greater protections. I have, for years now, been understanding and supportive of that. 
So of course, we all have a stake in eliminating anti-Jewish bigotry and bias. Where I'm less clear is when I'm watching my government take a side in what appears to be a dispute within the Jewish community to, in a very real sense, determine on behalf of the Jewish community who the real Jews are. Is that really something that we want the U.S. government deciding? Some Jews who are highly critical of modern Israel or the concept of Zionism have themselves lost family in the Holocaust or are themselves living in Israel, including family members of hostages. And as someone who's not Jewish, I'm not going to tell them they're not real Jews or are not Jewish enough if this is how they process their generational trauma or decide this is what their religion means to them. I'm not comfortable telling Jews that they're anti-Jewish. From where I stand, that's something that needs to be sorted within their own community, not externally by people who are not Jews. Just as Christians argue endlessly about who gets to be a real Christian, as someone who's not Christian, I don't tell them who is and is not a Christian. And this was my public and personal philosophy when I engaged in secular activism. I wasn't comfortable or willing to gatekeep Christians, and I'm not about to start gatekeeping Jews. But this rift is interesting to me, for many of the same reasons any internal community debate is interesting. It's hard to be supportive or amplify the voices of marginalized people when those voices begin to fall out of harmony with one another. When a group is trying to flesh out what's best for their safety and security, that's a fair thing to want to flesh out. And I see real attacks on Jews and the Jewish community on threads on these issues from people who are not Jews, even though being Jewish isn't really what this is about. I honestly do see far too many people using Jews or Jew when they're actually upset at Netanyahu's policies or mechanisms of Zionism, both of which have Jewish critics as well. Attacking Jews for things that even segments of Jews oppose is not only sloppy, but it's harmful to everyone who's Jewish. And that should be called out and condemned anywhere it happens. I don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist, and I don't have to be a Gentile to reject Zionism, but I still see people on these threads targeting Jews and the Jewish community, and I can't deny that real anti-Jewish bigotry comes out in these threads. It's a conflation of Jews with Zionism, with Israel's national policy. People taking the community as homogenous and buying into the narrative that there is no distinction between Netanyahu and his policies and Jews generally, even though there are Jews in Israel right now protesting against him. But within the Jewish community, I've seen many different views coming out. Even among Zionists, there's a rift about what that means for relations with Palestinians. I've seen the phrase, not a monolith, weaponized against marginalized communities pretty often. Someone who benefits from oppressing a group will cherry-pick a handful of members of a marginalized group who support their own oppression and ignore broader consensus within the group in an effort to use some members as a shield for their own bigoted agendas. But in this case, it really isn't anything close to a monolith. We aren't talking about a few fringe elements disagreeing with broad community consensus. There are real and not insubstantial rifts here. 
some of the most fervent critics of Zionism and Israeli policy are calls coming from inside the house. And it's not just a handful of pundits, but multiple movements on multiple fronts. A survey about Jewish attitudes toward Israel posted at Pew Research shows that on many questions put to U.S. Jews, the numbers were split down the middle, or somewhere around 60-40, depending on what was asked. Some had greater consensus, but this issue is not a slam dunk. Watching the interview with Keeler, though, I hear him say the petition signed by Morgenthau and reportedly signed by 31 other prominent Jews was almost prophetic in how it laid out what would happen if the Zionist vision were to materialize in Palestine. He also says Morgenthau is a big name within the Jewish community. I honestly had no idea about whether or how prominent the name Morgenthau is among Jews. And I'm always skeptical of claims like that because in my past secular activism, it was often the case that someone arguing from a position would present their own experts as the most informed, the most respected, the most prominent and elite members of their fields of study or areas of expertise. And this should always be viewed with skepticism. But then I saw a Times of Israel article that referred to the Morgenthau family as, quote, the Jewish Kennedys, unquote. I saw Keeler wasn't kidding. So I learned something. I wake up and pull up Morgenthau's wiki entry. It says, quote, Following the war, there was much interest and preparation within the Jewish community for the forthcoming Paris Peace Conference by groups both supportive and opposed to the concept of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. In March 1919, as President Woodrow Wilson was leaving for the conference, Morgenthau was among 31 prominent Jewish Americans to sign an anti-Zionist petition presented by U.S. Congressman Julius Kahn, unquote. But it lacked a link to the petition, so I went to Kahn's page to get the link. However, Kahn, who was a Jewish member of the U.S. House of Representatives, has a page with a note saying that it's not well cited. And the petition wasn't even mentioned there. So I googled some terms I thought would get me hits on this petition, but I got very little, certainly nothing that's what I'm looking for. I want the full text of the document. I even got a hit to the full text of the presentation to the Paris conference outlining the case for establishing the Jewish state. But the petition eluded me. I couldn't understand why I was having trouble locating an official document presented to a U.S. president by a U.S. representative as a Jewish position on the question of Zionism, as an input to the imminent Paris Peace Conference where the case for the state of Israel is going to be made. This is an incredibly historic moment of political importance where a dispute within the Jewish community, not unlike the dispute we're seeing today, was front and center. I finally find a few articles that quote bits and pieces of the petition, and I use those to try again. It resulted in one page with only a couple of hits. All of this just made me even more determined and curious. Letters to presidents and petitions from prominent people are archived. There's no reason for a document this prominent to be mentioned, but this hard to find. Keeler was talking about it as though he'd read it, it's an important piece of history, so it's got to be archived. So how do I read it? It's like I'm searching for a needle in a haystack. Keeler said that growing up, he never heard about this document either, and that a lot of people aren't aware of it, especially within the Jewish community. 
I wouldn't even know how to vet whether or not that's true, but I can say it's not easy to lay hands on. And why would a piece of publicly recorded history be mentioned but not linked on Wikipedia? I do find a hit at the National Library of Israel in partnership with Tel Aviv University. But it's just a contemporaneous newspaper article archive page from the Hebrew Standard from March 14, 1919. I have to laugh at the irony as I read the first paragraph of this article. I can't find the petition at the archive, but I can find an article there that starts out by talking about how very important this petition is to Jews and to history. I wanted to include whatever feedback was published from a Jewish newspaper concurrently with this debate. It's titled simply, The Anti-Zionist Petition, and is a one-column-length article that's buried on page 8. The wording sounds a little antiquated, and I don't see a byline listed, but here's the text. The formal protest presented to President Wilson at Philadelphia last week by Congressman Julius Kahn on behalf of himself and his associates who strenuously oppose political Zionism, especially that phase of it which aims to erect in Palestine a national home for segregated Jews, is an important document. It must not be lightly considered. Its implications are far-reaching, and its effect on the future course of Jewish history is very likely to be profound. First and foremost, the document offers President Wilson concrete evidence, if such were needed, that the Zionists have encountered an opposition of the greatest character within the ranks of the Jews themselves. In short, this protest crystallizes and articulates all the animadversions against the Balfour Declaration, against the idea of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, which have been heard since November 3, 1917. How can the peace conference dispose of Zionist claims or of Jewish aspirations as colored by Zionist inclinations in the face of such a dignified and adequate protest from a powerful and representative section of American Jewry? Doubtless this protest will evoke similar memorials from Jews opposed to nationalism in other parts of the world. Secondly, the document wisely and unequivocally differentiates nationalism from the struggle for Jewish rights and rightly points out that in seeking to attain the former of these ideals, Zionists may in all likelihood foreclose themselves of their inalienable claim to the latter. Thirdly, the document was necessary because the Zionists have secured control of nearly all, and certainly all the American, organized Jewish media of publicity and have given the world the impression that their leaders speak for a united and supporting Jewry. That this erroneous impression has come to prevail is most unfortunate, but entirely due to Zionist leaders themselves. Finally, in all frankness, we ought to point out that while a few of the signatories to this American Jewish protest are men whose interest in Jewish affairs has been conspicuous by its absence and who have coquetted the ethical culture and similar impossibilities for the true Jew, yet a sufficient number of the signatories are sincere, enlightened, and zealously loyal Jews whose opinions are entitled clearly to a great measure of weight. We deem it rather unwise for a Jewish journal to criticize the Jewish publication society on the score that this organization has not issued any works in the nature of propaganda and defense of our people. 
yet practically every publication bearing its imprint has, in reality, a message of this nature for the general reader. Take the late Solomon Schechter's Studies in Judaism, or Israel Zangwill's novels, which the Jewish Publication Society published and which are, in truth, striking presentations of the claims of the Jewish race for fair and human treatment. As a matter of fact, the Jewish Publication Society has issued a number of pamphlets designedly in the nature of propaganda works, such as the little booklet dealing with the persecutions of the Jews in Russia and the many separate reprints of important articles appearing in various issues of the American Jewish Yearbook. Naturally, the first consideration of an organization like the Jewish Publication Society is to serve its constituency adequately and well, and propaganda works properly so-called, are often out of place in such a program. The current recrudescence of anti-Semitism among certain private schools in this country throws light upon the distinctive characteristics of these educational establishments. For their prototype, we must have recourse to the pages of Dickens and other great novelists who depicted these institutions with firm and unerring hands. The private schools in Anglo-Saxon countries are hotbeds of snobbishness where outworn notions regarding the state, the church, and the relation of the citizen thereto prevail. If a private school has attained to an established clientele, it must of necessity set up certain standards demanded by the parents of the children attending it. One of the first such standards is that the scholars be preserved from all contaminating influences, and in consequence, anti-Semitism, usually mild, though sometimes very virulent, flourishes there. The philosophy of such a manifestation is that not only should Jewish children remain away from such an environment, but the state is badly served by such teachers of youth and the youths themselves poorly equipped for their future duties in the battle of life. In the smaller cities of this country, which contain not very large but closely united Jewish communities, the best workers in and for Jewry are sometimes to be discovered. They usually are men who participate actively in all that makes for the progress of their hometown, are influential in its commercial and professional life, and at the same time take an abiding interest in the affairs of Jewry. Such men flourish best in the atmosphere of smaller cities. New York, with its tremendous community, has many choice spirits among its worthy communal workers, but for the best examples of this genre, we must hie ourselves to the provinces. Indeed, with but few exceptions which prove the rule, our national Jewish leaders serve their apprenticeships as communal workers in smaller cities of the kind indicated. There they won their spurs in service, and as a result they graduated thence into the ranks of the men whose doings fill the columns of the press whenever matters Jewish are to the fore. So often has New York, in attempt, emulated this example, and so often, alas, have we had to confess failure and hark back to the country for those whom we call to positions of leadership in our midst. And that's the end of the article. I still have not come across the names of the 31 other signatories, so I can't comment on their resumes. But it appears clear from the sparse sources that I could find that people within the community saw this conversation as important, and this document as relevant. It represents a record of Jewish voices who dissented to the creation of an Israeli state 
and who did not win that dispute in the court of political opinion of the global north. I find an article on Mondo Wise with a quote that they claim is from this petition. Mondo Wise posts some interesting content and leads, but at Media Bias Fact Check, they could have a better set of ratings. Still, it gets me where I need to go. And here I want to make a case for broad resources. I have some resources I trust to give me full and accurate information. I have others that I use to give me interesting leads that I need to take with a grain of salt. Mixed rating for fact check and bias don't always mean useless resource. Sometimes it means a resource that will report on issues you won't hear about in larger outlets and platforms, but are still important. Yes, you have to be willing to dive deeper and do your own research and vetting of what they're reporting. You can't take it at face value, but it can still lead to some interesting and eventually factually supported stories. I try to use a range of sources, and I try to be sure that those sources are backed up by other reliable sources. So all that just to say that different sources can serve different purposes, and they don't always have to be perfect sources to send you on a path to an interesting story. Using the quote from Mondawise, I find two more sites that appear to be posting the full petition. The sites are not suspect in the sense of unreliable, but they are suspect in the sense that they're subversive sites. The first hit is at radiofree.org. The other URL is literally titled dissidentvoice.org. These are not what I was expecting. I'm not looking for the Osama bin Laden letter or secret CIA documents. This is a public official petition signed by prominent political figures like the U.S. Ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, Morgenthau, and presented to U.S. President Woodrow Wilson by a U.S. Representative, Julius Kahn, for presentation publicly at the Paris Conference. I honestly expected my first hits to be hits like Library of Congress or Wilson's Personal Archives or documents tied to the Paris Conference, but... Radio Free and Dissident Voice are my options. And what they're posting is an official-looking anti-Zionist document that I think is the petition I'm looking for. But I don't know how to confirm it's the same one signed by Morgenthau and presented to Wilson by Kahn. Finally, I get a hit on a book, Zionism and the Future of Palestine, The Fallacies and Dangers of Political Zionism, by Morris Jostro, published in 1919 contemporaneously with this petition. And there's where I find the citation I'm looking for that confirms that the content is, in fact, quote, handed to President Wilson on behalf of the signers by Congressman Julius Kahn on March 4, 1919, for transmission to the peace conference at Paris, unquote. At this point, even as I'm recording, I have not read the document. I am literally copying and pasting it into the script, sight unseen. And because it's such a difficult piece of history to find, I am going to spend this podcast episode simply reading this piece of history, because it should not be this hard to find something like this. When I grew up, we studied abolition, but we also reviewed the opposition voices. The pro-slavery perspectives offered by many of the southern states weren't erased, they're still studied. At least in my school, that didn't mean promoting them or calling them valid. It was just studying what happened and understanding the context and the public sentiments that were motivating the historic decisions and actions. This document, 
offers much of the same value. I have no opinion on it currently since I haven't read it yet. But history should not be erased, even horrifying history. I mean, the most brutal genocide ever perpetuated is now associated with the phrases never forget and never again, and those who won't remember history are doomed to repeat it. Part of the great loss in Gaza right now is the destruction not only of lives and infrastructure, but historic mosques and universities filled with archives. There is something sad to me that in high school I was taught about the rise of Nazism, the speeches of Hitler. Who has not heard of his book Mein Kampf? I can go into any general bookstore, in person or online, and purchase a copy of it. This we are told to remember. This we are told to never forget. But these Jewish dissident voices appear, to me at least, to be being erased. And I'm not accusing or promoting anything conspiratorial. Maybe they lost the war of ideas at the time and these philosophies just became dusty. It doesn't really matter. Whether anyone agrees with them or not, do they not deserve to be treated with more respect when it comes to historic preservation than a figure like Adolf Hitler? When I was searching, I saw that Henry Morgenthau Sr. also co-wrote an autobiography called All in a Lifetime, published in 1922, just a few years after the petition. It's posted at a few other archival sites as well. You can literally download the book or read it online. But at the Amazon site, it includes the following note, quote, This scarce antiquarian book is a facsimile reprint of the original. Due to its age, it may contain imperfections such as marks, notations, marginalia, and flawed pages. Because we believe this work is culturally important, we have made it available as part of our commitment for protecting, preserving, and promoting the world's literature in affordable, high-quality, modern editions that are true to the original work." Unquote. On page 349, a portion of the petition the statement to the peace conference is included. In this same section, Morgenthau says that he was asked to present it at the conference and that he was joined by Rabbi Isaac Landman, editor of the American Hebrew, a Jewish weekly magazine which began publication in 1879. Morgenthau provides a look into his philosophical leanings in this passage from page 351. Quote, Every man has his master passion, Mine is for democracy. I believe that history's best effort in democracy is the United States, which has rooted in its constitution all that any group of its citizens can legitimately desire. Yet here were Americans willing to cooperate with Central Europeans who wanted to establish in their own countries a nation within a nation, a proposition fundamentally opposed to our American principles. I pointed this out, I said that under this plan, a Jew in Poland or Romania, for example, would soon face conflicting duties, and that any American who advocated such a conflict of allegiance for the Jews of Central Europe would perhaps expose the Jews in America to the suspicion of harboring a similar desire. 
minorities everywhere, I maintained, would fare better if they protected their religious rights in the countries where they resided, and then joined their fellow countrymen in bettering, for all its inhabitants, the land of their common citizenship." Unquote. This morning when I got up, I was expecting to record this episode today. I'm actually interested to finally see what's in this petition. But before doing so, I decided I was going to go back to the Library of Congress to really give it the old college try to find this document there. I start my search with Congressman Julius Kahn, but get no hits for this petition. I then try Henry Morgenthau Sr. I use the date filter to narrow it down to 1910 to 1919. I even try 1920 to 1929. Wikipedia lists the date Wilson left for the conference as 1919. I've done transcription work for Library of Congress before. That does not make me an expert in navigating the site. There are a lot of documents there, so it's possible this is there, and I'm just not searching properly. It's also possible this falls outside their scope. But they don't just house published materials. The archive holds personal letters, photographs, even audio recordings. I look at Woodrow Wilson. In the 1900s, there are over 150,000 archive documents. In the date range of 1900 to 1919, there are over 97,000. I narrow it down by choosing Paris Peace Conference as the subject. There are still 900 documents. I choose 1919, which brings it down to under 500. Many are collections of papers, and I'm not sure how I'd even know where to start looking. I try subjects again, and I find Henry Morgenthau cross-referenced with one hit but it's not the petition. I search subjects to see if Julius Kahn is listed as a cross-reference, but he's not. I start a new search under anti-Zionism, which the library has paired with anti-Semitism. I filter by date. I search under the filter contributor and don't see Morgenthau listed. I narrow the date further to 1919. Most are newspaper articles. I narrow it further to English. I look under subject, but I don't see the Paris Peace Conference listed. There are only a few hits that don't look like newspaper articles, and none of those are the petition. I see a copy of the Denver Jewish News from March 19, 1919, and I click on it. The front page features an article about the petition. I zoom in. It says it's drafted by Dr. Henry Berkowitz and Professor Morris Jastro of Philadelphia and Max Sr., of Cincinnati. It isn't an authored article. It is actually a full reprint of the petition itself that continues on page three. It lists only the signers from Denver, identifying them as Dr. Wynn S. Friedman, Samuel E. Cohn, and Berthold Fleischer. The Wynn in Wynn S. Friedman is abbreviated. Winfred, Winston, I don't know what the first name is. I scan a few other papers from March and April, but nothing stands out. I download the pages from the Denver paper and end my search at the Library of Congress. And now, finally, I get to see what is in this petition. A Statement to the Peace Conference As a future form of government for Palestine will undoubtedly be considered by the approaching Peace Conference, we, the undersigned citizens of the United States, unite in this statement 
setting forth our objections to the organization of a Jewish state in Palestine as proposed by the Zionist societies in this country and Europe, and to the segregation of the Jews as a nationalistic unit in any country. We feel that in so doing we are voicing the opinion of the majority of American Jews born in this country and of those foreign-born who have lived here long enough to thoroughly assimilate American political and social conditions. The American Zionists represent, according to the most recent statistics available, only a small portion of the Jews living in this country, about 150,000 out of 3,500,000, according to the American Jewish Yearbook, 1918, Philadelphia. At the outset, we wish to indicate our entire sympathy with the efforts of Zionists which aim to secure for Jews at present living in lands of oppression a refuge in Palestine or elsewhere where they may freely develop their capabilities and carry on their activities as free citizens. But we raise our voices in warning and protest against the demand of the Zionists for the reorganization of the Jews as a national unit to whom, now or in the future, territorial sovereignty in Palestine shall be committed. This demand not only misrepresents the trend of the history of the Jews who ceased to be a nation 2,000 years ago, but involves the limitation and possible annulment of the larger claims of Jews for full citizenship and human rights in all lands in which those rights are not yet secure. For the very reason that the new era upon which the world is entering aims to establish government everywhere on principles of true democracy, we reject the Zionistic project of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Zionism arose as a result of the intolerable conditions under which Jews have been forced to live in Russia and Romania. But it is evident that for the Jewish population of these countries, variously estimated at from 6 to 10 millions, Palestine can become no homeland. Even with the improvement of the neglected condition of this country, its limited area can offer no solution. The Jewish question in Russia and Romania can be settled only within those countries by the grant of full rights of citizenship to Jews. We are all the more opposed to the Zionists because they themselves distinctly repudiate the sole ameliorative program. They demand and hail with delight the Balfour Declaration to establish a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, that is, a home not merely for Jews living in countries in which they are oppressed, but for Jews universally. No Jew, wherever he may live, can consider himself free from the implications of such a grant. The willingness of Jews interested in the welfare of their brethren to aid in redeeming Palestine from the blight of centuries of Turkish misrule is no acceptance of the Zionist project to segregate Jews as a political unit and to reinstitute a section of such a political unit in Palestine or elsewhere. At the present juncture in the world's affairs, when lands have hitherto been subjected to foreign domination are to be recognized as free and independent states, we rejoice in the avowed proposal of the Peace Congress to put into practical application the fundamental principles of democracy. That principle, which asserts equal rights for all citizens of a state, irrespective of creed or ethnic descent, should be applied in such a manner as to exclude segregation of any kind, be it nationalistic or other. Such segregation must inevitably create differences among the sections of the population of a country, 
and such plan of segregation is necessarily reactionary in its tendency, undemocratic in spirit, and totally contrary to the practices of free government, especially as these are exemplified by our own country. We therefore strongly urge the abandonment of such a basis for the reorganization of any state. Objections to Segregation of Jews as a Political Unit Against such a political segregation of the Jews in Palestine or elsewhere, we object. Number one, because the Jews are dedicated heart and soul to the welfare of the countries in which they dwell under free conditions. All Jews repudiate every suspicion of a double allegiance, but to our minds it is necessarily implied in and cannot by any logic be eliminated from the establishment of a sovereign state for the Jews in Palestine. By the large part taken by them in the Great War, World War I, the Jews have once and for all shattered the base aspirations of the anti-Semites, which charged them with being aliens in every land, incapable of true patriotism, and prompted only by sinister and self-seeking motives. Moreover, it is safe to assume that the overwhelming bulk of the Jews in America, England, France, Italy, Holland, Switzerland, and other lands of freedom have no thought whatever of surrendering their citizenship in these lands in order to resort to a Jewish homeland in Palestine. As a rule, those who favor such a restoration advocate it not for themselves but for others. Those who act thus and yet insist on their patriotic attachment to the countries of which they are citizens, are self-deceived in their profession of Zionism and under the spell of an emotional romanticism or of a religious sentiment fostered through centuries of gloom. Number two, we also object to political segregation of Jews for those who take their Zionistic professions seriously as referring not to others, but to themselves. Granted that the establishment of a sovereign Jewish state in Palestine would lead many to emigrate to that land, the political conditions of the millions who would be unable to migrate for generations to come, if ever, would be made far more precarious. Romania, despite the pledges of the Berlin Treaty, has legally branded her Jews as aliens, though many are descended from families settled in that country longer than the present Romanian government has existed. The establishment of a Jewish state will manifestly serve the malevolent rulers of that and other lands as a new justification for additional repressive legislation. The multitudes who remain would be subject to worse perils, if possible, even though the few who escaped might prosper in Palestine. Number three. We object to the political segregation also of those who might succeed in establishing themselves in Palestine. The proposition involves dangers which, it is manifest, have not had the serious consideration of those who are so zealous in its advocacy. These dangers are adverted to in a most kindly spirit of warning by Sir George Adam Smith, who is generally acknowledged to be the greatest authority in the world on everything connected to Palestine, either past or present. In a recent publication, Syria and the Holy Land, he points out that there is absolutely no fixity to the boundaries of Palestine. These have varied greatly in the course of the centuries. The claims to various sections of this undefined territory would unquestionably evoke bitter controversies. It is not true, says Sir George, that Palestine is the national home of the Jewish people and of no other people. It is not correct to call its non-Jewish inhabitants Arabs, 
or to say that they have left no image of their spirit and made no history except in the great mosque. Nor can we evade the fact that Christian communities have been as long in possession of their portion of this land as ever the Jews were. These are legitimate questions, he says, stirred up by the claims of Zionism, but the Zionists have not yet fully faced them. To subject the Jews to the possible recurrence of such bitter and sanguinary conflicts which would be inevitable would be a crime against the triumphs of their whole past history and against the lofty and world-embracing visions of their great prophets and leaders. Number four, though these grave difficulties be met, still we protest against the political segregation of the Jews and the reestablishment in Palestine of a distinctively Jewish state as utterly opposed to the principles of democracy which it is the avowed purpose of the World's Peace Conference to establish. Whether the Jews be regarded as a race or as a religion, it is contrary to the democratic principles for which the World War was waged to found a nation on either or both of these bases. America, England, France, Italy, Switzerland, and all the most advanced nations of the world are composed of representatives of many races and religions. Their glory lies in the freedom of conscience and worship, in the liberty of thought and custom which binds the followers of many faiths and varied civilizations in the common bonds of political union. A Jewish state involves fundamental limitations as to race and religion, else the term Jewish means nothing. To unite church and state in any form, as under the old Jewish hierarchy, would be a leap backward of 2,000 years. The rights of other creeds and races will be respected under Jewish dominance is the assurance of Zionism. But the keynotes of democracy are neither condescension nor tolerance, but justice and equality. All this applies with special force to a country like Palestine, that land is filled with associations sacred to the followers of the three great religions, and as a result of migration movements of many centuries contains an extraordinary number of different ethnic groups, far out of proportion to the small extent of the country itself. Such a condition points clearly to the reorganization of Palestine on the broadest possible basis. Number five. We object to the political segregation of the Jews because it is an error to assume that the bond uniting them is of a national character. They are bound by two factors, first, the bond of common religious beliefs and aspirations, and secondly, the bond of common traditions, customs, and experiences, largely, alas, of common trials and sufferings. Nothing in their present status suggests that they form, in any real sense, a separate nationalist unit. The reorganization of Palestine, as far as it affects the Jews, is but part of a larger issue, namely the constructive endeavor to secure the emancipation of the Jews in all the lands in which they dwell. This movement, inaugurated in the 18th century and advancing with steady progress through the Western lands, was checked by such reactionary tendencies as caused the expulsion of the Poles from eastern Prussia and the massacre of Armenians in Turkey. As directed against Jews, these tendencies crystallized into a political movement called anti-Semitism, which had its rise in Germany. Its virulence spread, especially through Eastern Europe, led to cruel outbreaks in Romania and elsewhere, and to the pogroms of Russia with their dire consequences. To guard against such evils in the future, we urge that the great constructive movement, so sadly interrupted, be reinstituted, and that efficient measures be taken to ensure the protection of the law and the full rights of citizenship to Jews in every land. 
If the basis of the reorganization of governments is henceforth to be democratic, it cannot be contemplated to exclude any group of people from the enjoyment of full rights. As to the future of Palestine, it is our fervent hope that what was once a promised land for the Jews may become a land of promise for all races and creeds, safeguarded by the League of Nations, which, it is expected, will be one of the fruits of the peace conference to whose deliberations the world now looks forward so anxiously and so full of hope. We ask that Palestine be constituted as a free and independent state, to be governed under a democratic form of government recognizing no distinctions of creed or race or ethnic descent, and with adequate power to protect the country against oppression of any kind. We do not wish to see Palestine, either now or at any time in the future, organized as a Jewish state. End of petition. I am no expert in history, and my view of the document doesn't really matter. It's not any more valid than any other inexpert view. I'm not saying it's wrong to have views. I'm saying whatever view you have, mine would be no more legitimate whether it validated what you think or disputed it. You might have no opinion on it at all. You might think reading it was a waste of an episode. Or you might find it interesting. You may strongly disagree with it, or you may think it's brilliant. I won't tell anyone what to think. But it's part of history, and there's no reason that it should be erased. And now for the coda I mentioned. I was going to end this episode here, but I went to bed last night before posting it because I hadn't formatted the description resources yet, and it was very late. It never fails that when I wake up, that's the time I have the most thoughts. I don't know if that's just a result of sleeping or just having some time between hearing something like the content of this petition and pondering it, but the main reason I wanted to read it was that so many people were calling it prophetic in nature. Not supernaturally prophetic, but predictive in the sense of Morgenthau's understanding of the global situation and the potentialities for Jews if this goal was realized. I was simply curious to see what was in it. And when I had a hard time finding it, I felt even more of a drive to find it and read it. And I wanted to share that journey with all of you, and it seemed perfect for the history erased category. But I have realized two things about this episode overnight. I realized that I failed to give listeners any historic context for this document. And I realized that I did not anticipate the potential damage that the ideas within it could do. I'm sure there's more that I'm overlooking, but those two things became glaring problems only after I had a chance to read this petition. And now, after reading it and thinking about the claims that a lot of it was almost prophetic, I can understand why people suggest that. A lot of what Morgenthau describes has panned out whether it was for the reasons he predicted or not. So, a few points of context. Number one, I mentioned that Morgenthau was the U.S. ambassador to the Ottoman Empire from 1913 to 1916. I did not mention that part of Ottoman rule was the area of Palestine. It fell out of the hands of the empire in 1918 when it was taken by Britain the same year World War I ended. So Morgenthau could very credibly be called an expert in this area of the world during that time. It was his job to understand it, and no surprise that his concerns would materialize because the more someone knows about a situation, the better their predictions are. Number two is that the Paris Peace Conference happened because of World War I. 
The main thrust of the meetings was to sort through the results of the conflicts and figure out the terms of the victors and the defeated going forward. It was the battered world coming together to answer the question, what now? It wasn't really intended to be focused on the Zionist question, but that question was obviously raised there, which is why Morgenthau presented his petition in response. World War II didn't start until 1939, and it ended in 1945. Morgenthau Sr. died in 1946, soon after. In good faith, I did try to find if he ever changed his position on the Zionist question during or after World War II, and I did not find anything to indicate that. But I do have to note that the difficulty I had finding this petition makes it clear that not everything about his life is at Google's fingertips. And as I mentioned in the original script, Raphael Lemkin shifted his positions ultimately, so it is possible. I just didn't find anything to indicate anything similar for Morgenthau. It's true that Morgenthau's prediction that oppression of European Jews would worsen. It's also true that we see a lot of hostility and discord in the Middle East, which he also said would erupt. And although I didn't discuss it, there's a lot of research written about the oppression of non-Jews in Israel and the gatekeeping mechanisms used in Israel to maintain Jewish supremacy, which Morgenthau again pointed out would have to be the case in order to allow one group of people to hold the power in a nation without losing it. In the U.S., we are unofficially white supremacist, and we use many of the same mechanisms I've read about in Israel to maintain our own control. And even with all of the walls we throw up to avoid it, the U.S. demographic is shifting away from a white majority, and it has some citizens really terrified. And our laws reflect that. I will include in the description a good paper that discusses some of this, but it's not my main point. It's just something Morgenthau raised when he asked, basically, how do you maintain an empowered majority without restrictions on other demographics? A real democracy would undermine that. Some people laugh at the concept of a dangerous idea. I actually think there are dangerous ideas because we live in a world with dangerous people who are sometimes extremely empowered. So an idea in a vacuum won't be dangerous, but since we live in the real world, there are implications to ideas. And in this case, one of the dangers in this world is the strong drive for so many people to have this victim-blaming mentality. If you've ever been on social media where a discussion is happening about crime, you will see comments like this. I'm not blaming Marsha for being the victim of a home invasion. I'm just saying she should have not left her door unlocked. It's like people don't hear themselves. If I'm walking and seeing your door swung wide open, I don't consider it an invitation to enter and rob you or harm you and your family. The open door is not what causes or even contributes to the crime. The fact that by far most people won't commit a crime even when presented with an open door should demonstrate that. There are other factors that motivate crime, and it's only when those other factors are in play that a crime will happen. Those are the factors responsible for the crime. That is, you need a person motivated to commit a crime for a crime to occur, whether there's opportunity or not. If my door isn't shut, is home invasion on me? If my door is not locked, is it on me? If I don't have a deadbolt installed, is it on me? 
if I don't have a solid enough door, is it on me? If I don't have a chain on the door, is it on me? If I forgot to lock a window, is it on me? If I don't own a guard dog, is it on me? If I don't have a gun, is it on me? If I don't have a security system, is it on me? Do I need bars on my windows or it's on me? A security camera or it's on me? A security guard or it's on me? A team of security agents? I mean, where do you draw a line and say that a crime committed against me while I'm at home asleep is on me? If a person is a victim blamer, literally nothing I can say will get them to see the problem. I have tried. And my fear is that people with this type of victim blaming perspective who also harbor anti-Jewish bigotry will see Morgenthau's warning and say, see, this was predictable. People like Morgenthau were vocal and public and warning them, and they did it anyway. They brought this on themselves. In the same way someone would suggest that leaving my door open was me bringing a violent home invasion on myself, I can see how someone might say that particular policy was instrumental in bringing about a particular result. For example, there are debates about the problems that arose from establishing a nation-state where people were already living. There are debates about oppressive mechanisms a state would have to employ to retain supremacy for a particular demographic. But there is no debate about whether or not a group can bring genocide upon itself. In fact, we're seeing that now in the narratives around Palestine. One narrative is that the brutal Hamas attack on October 7th justifies literally any amount of death and destruction that happens in retaliation and response against innocent civilians, even if we have to slaughter them all. Another narrative is that regardless of what Hamas has done, a genocidal response cannot be justified even within a context of self-defense. Wiping an entire people off the face of the globe is not ever a justified response. Yes, Morgenthau warned that with the world being what it was and people being who they are and regimes being what they were, Jews promoting their own separatist movement wasn't going to play well and could put people at risk. This was undeniably one of the fears he was expressing in that petition. But simply observing that there's an international undercurrent of anti-Jewish sentiment that could be dangerous if it's provoked doesn't shift responsibility for the bigoted response to the group that is victimized. That is, if a child lives in a house with a physically abusive parent and they stand up for themselves and end up in the hospital as a result, it's not because they stood up for themselves. It's because they have an abusive parent. And as Morgenthau started out his petition, he sympathized with the Zionist goal of wanting safety for Jewish communities. He just disagreed with the method, but he shared the goal of safety for his community. I want to be clear that there is no justification on earth for the Holocaust, and there is nothing any Jew or group of Jews could have done or ever could do to justify such a thing. And it would be the height of irresponsibility and disregard for the safety of the Jewish community to suggest otherwise or to try and use the contents of this petition to try and make that argument or point. It would be evil. And so my goal here is not to promote anything like that, especially in the current political climate. I can say all day that I see lines of division between Jews and Zionism and Israeli national policy. But that will never stop the person who wants to attack Jews and the Jewish community and will use any mechanism they can to do so. My goal is not to contribute to that, which is why I added both the introduction and this coda after thinking through the contents of Morgenthau's petition. I implore everyone who hears this episode to keep this in mind. 
Please be kind to one another as you go back to your life. I wish you peace. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring experience and meaning in individuals and the broader society. Like and subscribe if you enjoy these talks. And in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.